Lord, we come to praise and we come to learn. We come to encourage one another, to provoke, to stir up one another, to love and good works. We come to worship. And it is so exciting, Lord, to take hold of the concept that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are here. Lord, Lord, since you're everywhere, you must be here in some special way. Show us today. By speaking to every heart through your powerful word, by transforming our thinking, by offering us hope when we are depressed and bringing conviction where we are arrogant. Show us the way. Send your spirit to do your work that we might leave this place to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. How long do you think I have? Paul questioned the guard. The Roman jailer said, not long. Nero has no patience for Christians like you. And since he is now arrested, captured, the, the leader of this crazy cult, it won't be long. So whatever you want to do before you die, you'd better do it now. I envision that scene as Paul then began to dictate to a secretary who was just above the hole in the ground and could barely hear Paul, his last will and testament that we call 2 Timothy. Sir Walter Raleigh, an English gentleman, a, a writer, a poet, a, a landowner, part of the aristocracy, had gotten in bad graces with the king, and three times he was put into the Tower of London, but this third time was going to be the last time. He knew that he would be beheaded for crimes against the crown. And it said that in his last night, he wrote this poem. Even such is time that takes in trust our joys, our youth, are all we have, and pays us back with earth and dust. Who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. Sir Walter Raleigh was in a famous prison in a celebrated city planned to be executed the next day by beheading, and that seems to be exactly the story of the Apostle Paul. In a famous prison, in a celebrated city, to be beheaded by Nero, and as tradition reliably tells us, or fairly reliably tells us, Paul was beheaded soon after he wrote 2 Timothy on the Ostian Way, just outside of the walls of Rome. But before he died, he wrote these words. Walter Raleigh wrote a poem. The Apostle Paul wrote an epistle. 
We call it the letter to 2 Timothy. Let me encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy, and we're now in the fourth chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you're going to have to use your imagination because the PowerPoint's not working. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So Paul gives to Timothy a charge. It's a very awesome word. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. That sounds a whole lot like a wedding ceremony to me. Whenever I have the privilege of officiating at a wedding, uh, I almost always use these words to the couple. I charge you both as you stand in the presence of God to remember that the vows that you will be reciting to one another form a holy covenant. They are a sacred promise. And this should not be entered into lightly, but discreetly and in the fear of God. Ever heard those words before? And and now Paul is saying basically the same thing. I charge you, solemnly charge you in the presence of God that what I'm about to say is of the utmost importance. And so listen, preach the word. Now if you jump down to verse 5 for a moment, the end of verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, well, verse 5, he says, keep your head in all situations. I love that translation. (laughs) Don't get crazy. Stay on top of it. Keep your head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And then the last phrase is discharge all the duties of your ministry. It's been translated in various ways. Many translations have the phrase, that you would fulfill your ministry. But I like like the New Living Translation that says, fully carry out the ministry God has given to you. So when he says preach the word, and then we're going to look at exactly how he is supposed to do that, he ends this charge to Timothy with these words, I want you to fully carry out the ministry that God has given you to do. Now, perhaps you have been tempted in the study of 2 Timothy to say that this is not for me, and especially this chapter, because this is a charge to Timothy, and it's not to me. But remember that this is inspired Scripture intent on being given to a wide range of people. So yes, indeed, primarily, and in the first instance, it's to Timothy. I suppose the second application would go immediately to those who are pastors, to those who are given the responsibility and are called of God to preach the word. This is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. This is one of my most fearful portions of Scripture. And this is what I seek to do at South. This is what drives me more than anything else, to preach the word and fulfill my ministry, which is primarily to preach the word. 
to preach it accurately, to preach it faithfully, and to preach it clearly by the grace of God and through the Spirit of Almighty God. But because this is written as part of the Scripture, there is a third step on the ladder of abstraction. We go from its immediate relationship between Paul and Timothy to Paul and preachers to Paul and all believers because all of us have been given a ministry by God that we are supposed to accomplish. It's not the same as Paul or Timothy. Yours is not the same as mine. Mine is not the same as yours. But get this, my friend, every one of you who is a believer, God has given you a ministry to do, and you need to fully carry it out before you croak. Right? Before you're done. It's got to be number one priority. And I charge you in the presence of God, fully carry out the ministry that God has given you to do. For Paul and Timothy, it was preach the word, to communicate a message. And the message he was not to invent, the message he was to discover in the pages of Holy Scripture. Preachers are not given the liberty to say what they want to say. They must say what God has already said. And too many preachers spend their time trying to be creative and coming up with a message invented in their own hearts and minds or popular among the masses. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to preach the word. And in the text, it says not just preach a word, but preach the word. This is the deposit that uh, Paul had talked to Timothy about in chapter 1. Guard the deposit that God has given you. This is the teaching that Paul had given Timothy and in chapter 2 said, the things you've learned from me give to faithful witnesses, to reliable people. This is the Holy Scripture of chapter 3 that we've just been studying. This is the word that needs to be preached. And so our charge is simple, but our task is difficult, well-nigh impossible without the aid of the blessed Holy Spirit. Simply speak what God has spoken and then make sure that God is carrying the message home. This is a sacred trust. But in the text, Paul gives some incentives to Timothy. You, uh, maybe Timothy, when he got the letter, remember he's a bit of a timid fellow, right? He's a bit hesitant. Maybe when he got the letter, he said, why, why should I do this? And so Paul gives some reasons. Why should he preach the word? Number one, because of the nature of Holy Scripture. That's why. Back to chapter 3, verse 16. Because all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is profitable. That is, it's practical, and it can transform your life. That's why this book needs to be preached. My opinions cannot transform your life. My words cannot convert a soul, but God's Word can. My Word cannot convict you of sin. I might manipulate you, as someone who deviously desires to get you under my control, <laughs> but that's not preaching. 
So we preach the word because of its holy nature. As Pastor Doug read from Isaiah 53, this is the word of God that has come down like rain or snow and touches the whole earth and never returns empty. It always accomplishes its purpose. And the word of God is different than our thoughts. And the ways of God, they're different from our ways. The only way you can know that is through the Holy Bible. But the nature of the scripture it equips the servant of God, chapter 3, verse 17. So that's why you need to preach the word. Secondly, you need to preach the word in light of the presence of God. So again, we go back to that idea of God being ever present. Timothy, you're living your life in the presence of God. Here's a thought that you and I often forget. There's a great verse in Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. I, I one time asked a, a group of athletes in baseball chapel, is that a good verse or a bad verse? <laughs> and you know what the answer is? It depends on your relationship to the one who's looking. Right? When I was in school and messing around in sixth grade in Mrs. Hicks' class in the back of the room, having a wonderful time, and she said, Donnie, get up to the front. I used to get in trouble a lot. <laughs> and she said, I've got my eye on you, and sixth grade was ruined for the rest of the year. <laughs> no fun, had to learn. Had to pretend I was paying attention. I've got my eye on you. That's horrible. But I would tell the ball players when they were playing in college, and a pro scout came from a professional baseball team and said to them, I've got my eye on you. Well, that's a pretty good thing. Or if someone you're interested in, in a romantic relationship, says, and they would never say it in these words, it's too corny, but I've got my eye on you. I mean, that might freak you out, but that is a good thing. So when God says, I've got my eye on you, is it good or bad? It depends. And if you're running from him or running to him. The neat thing about this is God sees whatever you do that's for his glory, no matter if anyone else sees it or not, and he will reward you accordingly. Remember that movie Home Alone where the little kid named Kevin was left by his parents in his house and he wakes up and realizes that he's alone and his first thought is fear. Oh no, my parents are gone. And then his face changes and he smiles and says, my parents are gone. <laughs> and the fear turns into wonderful possibilities. My friend, you are in the presence of Almighty God. That's awesome. That is awesome. Let it be a great encouragement to you. Let it guide your steps and encourage your way. And that's why you preach the word. You're in his presence. Thirdly, we are to preach because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this interesting? Verse 1 says that we are in the presence of God and of Christ who will judge the living and the dead in view of his appearing and his kingdom. 
Did you realize that verse 1 says Christ is here, but he's not? But he's coming? Christ, I'm in the presence of Christ, but Christ is coming. Theologians have a great phrase for this. It's the already, but the not yet. I am in the presence of Christ, but not fully. I am saved, but not completely. Right? There's a, another aspect of my salvation that won't take place until Jesus comes again. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. One day Jesus will come again and I'll be saved from the very presence of sin. The coming of Christ. We live between the comings of Christ. First advent is Christmas. Second coming is on its way. And because of that, preach the word. Because when he comes again, he's going to judge The Savior will be the judge and he will establish his kingdom. I find it interesting in verse 8 that Christians are described as those who are looking and longing for the coming of Christ. Unbelievers aren't anxious to see him, but true believers are. So that's another reason to preach How about this one? In light of the inclinations of modern humanity. So uh, I'm looking now at verse 3. For the time will come, Paul says to Timothy, when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. If your ears are itchy, you need to scratch them or rub them or tickle them. And basically it's a metaphor that says that these people want to hear a certain message, so they're looking for teachers who will say what they want to hear. They're looking for teachers who will itch the scratch. Modern society does not look for the truth of God's word. The time will come when they'll not put up with sound doctrine. And by the way, that time is here. (laughs) And increasingly so. But they'll look for preachers who don't preach the word, but preach what they've already determined. They're predisposed to have a certain message preached to them. I'm not going to go to that preacher. He preaches from the Bible. I want to hear someone encourage me. It's happening today. So Paul says to Timothy, this is why you need to preach the word. But he doesn't stop there. He says, now, I want you, I want to tell you how to preach the word. So we go from why, the motives, the incentives, to how. Jumping back to verse 2. Preach the word, and this is how you do it. Preach it constantly. That is, be in season and out of season. It means uh, that, that we are to preach it whether we want to or not, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. This is how preachers are to preach. It says in Ecclesiastes 11.4, the farmer who observes the wind will never sow, and he who regards the clouds will never reap. In other words, if you're so concerned about getting wet, 
<laughs> that it keeps you from going into the fields, you'll never farm. Uh, you, you've got to go against the grain. You've got to make sure that you press on when everyone else seems to be going in a def different direction. There's a sense of urgency to this. So do it in season and out of season. Preach constantly. Preach always. That's how you preach the word. Secondly, I want to, you to preach it comprehensively. We're still in verse 2. This is how you are to do it. Rebuke, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Those three things show balance and symmetry in the preaching of the Word of God. No preacher should find himself imbalanced. No preacher should emphasize only the sovereignty of God or only the responsibility of man. You need to preach the whole counsel of God comprehensively. That's exactly what Paul did. In the sense that there are correctives to be given and there are encouragements to be received. Now this is exactly what he said back in chapter 3, verse 16, when he said all Scripture is profitable. It's profitable to correct and reprove you, and it's profitable to train you and instruct you. And now he uses slightly different terms. Reproof, encourage, and correct. Someone put it this way. One old preacher, uh, I, I thought, capsulized it so well when he said, in preaching, we should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. <laughs> Are you comfortable today? My job is to afflict you. <laughs> Not quite that way, but comfort, comforted in their own self-righteousness. <laughs> if you think all you need is you, if you don't think you need Jesus, my job is to make you miserable until you turn to Christ. And I happily do it. <laughs> I've got a gift for making people miserable. <laughs> oh, but if you're miserable today and your heart is hurting and your sins are heavy and you're looking for a place to go to be forgiven, I've got a word for you. It's Jesus. And he'll forgive you of all your sin. And I love making the afflicted comfortable in Christ. How about this? Patience, long-suffering. That's how we are to preach the Word of God. We're not to lose heart or give up when people don't respond like we want them to respond. Remember back in chapter 2, the servant of the Lord, of the Lord must not strive, but be patient, apt to teach, Waiting for God to do the work in the soul that only God can do. My job is to preach the word faithfully under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's God's job to convict and convert. Don't manipulate your audience. Don't force them into a decision. Keep going patiently. And that's a tough thing to do in hard places. And the last one is that you are to preach didactically. Now, the word didactic comes from a Greek word, and that's almost exactly how you pronounce it in the original language, and it means teaching or instruction. Sometimes it's translated doctrine. We use the word didactic in our own English vocabulary to, to speak about instruction. But isn't it interesting that Paul said, preach the word 
didactically. Preach the word intelligently. Preach the word with great instruction. Preach the word with teaching. So it's not just emotion. It's not just getting people riled up. It's informing them of biblical truth. The pastoral ministry, said John Stott, is essentially a teaching ministry. Paul taught for two, three years, two and a half to three years, in the city of Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring right now when Paul writes to him. And Paul taught the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 20 tells us. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders, he said, remember, I did not hold anything back, but gave to you the whole message. So Timothy, here's the bottom line. I want you to preach the word constantly. And when you preach the word, I want you to both correct and encourage with great patience and good doctrine, careful instruction. Do it, even in the midst of great opposition. That's how you preach the word. Now the Apostle Paul says in verse five, Timothy, you need to be sober. Keep your head in all situations. The original translation is don't be drunk. It doesn't mean don't be drunk with wine, but don't be drunk with the attitudes and the fads of the day. Don't get caught up in this world. You're a soldier who has to endure hardness. And that's the very next word. Be brave and fearless. The intimidation of this world has silenced the mouths of many preachers. And still, it's happening today. We're to do the work of an evangelist, Paul says to Timothy in verse 5. That is, make sure you're always sharing the gospel. Let people know that Jesus died for sinners. Let people know that this is how they can become a believer. That's not the only message that needs to be proclaimed, but it needs to be constantly proclaimed. And then he says, discharge all the duties of your ministry. In other words, fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you. Now notice this. Paul spent the first five verses saying, Timothy, fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you. And now he says, because I have fully carried out the ministry that God has given to me. You must fulfill your ministry because I have fulfilled mine. Now we switch to verse 6. Paul said, for, this is the reason I'm telling you to do all of this, Timothy, for I'm being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If the first charge from Paul to Timothy sounded a little bit like a wedding, I charge you in the presence of God, this sounds a lot like a funeral. In fact, I use this text quite often in funeral messages because it is one of the greatest expressions of the Christian faith in the face of death. 
Paul says, I am, I have, and I will. I am departing soon. And he gives two illustrations. I'm being poured out like a drink offering, like a libation. Read uh, Numbers 15. One of the offerings was a drink, a liquid offering, and they would pour it around the altar. And Paul said, it's already happening. I am being poured out now. It's very vivid of someone's life ebbing away like water going out of a, a vessel. And then Paul says, the time for my departure has come. Fascinating word. It's used of a ship uh, loosening, its, loosening its moorings and, uh, from, from the dock and sailing out into the sea and going to a new destination. What a beautiful picture of death. When we say they're gone, someone on a distant shore says, here they come. Gone from our sight, but not gone. Simply sailed to another place. It's also used in the military of a tent, striking down a tent and getting ready to move. In fact, Paul uses it this way when he writes to the Corinthians. But get this. This word depart is also used of a prisoner who's been released from confinement and his shackles taken off and he's at liberty. That kind of fits old Paul, doesn't it? In prison. The time for my release has come. And he doesn't say it. I'm sure there is maybe a tear, but he, he says it with joy because he understands that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so he's excited. I am departing soon. I have completed my ministry. And he describes it with these pictures. I fought a good fight. I've run a good race and I've guarded the treasure of the Holy Word of God. All images that Paul has already used, fighting the good fight comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, the idea of running a race, uh, that's in Corinthians, but also in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And guarding a deposit, that's 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. So he brings these images in. By the way, all of these involve strenuous effort and great commitment, wholehearted commitment. The fighting could be boxing or wrestling, taking from the, uh, the Isthmian games of that day, most likely, much like our Olympic games. Running a race, you know what that's all about. And guarding the treasure is what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 14. Guard the good deposit, Timothy, that was entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Guard it. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, this was a few years before, earlier in his ministry, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I might finish my race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. My task is to proclaim God's grace. It was an aspiration then, now it is an accomplishment. He said, I long to finish my race in Acts 20. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, I've finished it by God's grace. And that is heaven. If you can face death and say, by the grace of God, I have finished 
my race. You fully carried out the ministry that God has given to you. Don't quit running. Finish it with all of your heart. And if you do, Paul says, I will receive a reward. A prize awaits. Now get this. In a couple days, Paul's going to go back into court. He's already been into court once. And he says in chapter 4 and verse 17 that everyone fled from me. He was all alone in court and he was condemned to die. He went back to his holding cell in the Mamertine prison and now another court is going to say, execute him. He's going to stand before another judge in a kangaroo court that will declare him guilty and worthy of death. But Paul says, in contrast to that, I am going to receive a reward from the righteous judge. Did you see that? The Lord, the righteous judge, not like Nero. He will reward me with the crown of righteousness. It's long debated what is that crown. Is it the imputed righteousness of Christ? It could be, but it seems to be in the context the fact that since Paul had already received the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is the crown of faithfulness in serving his master. Gordon Fee said, the one who receives the final crown of righteousness receives it precisely because he's already received the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. Now, again, this isn't just for Paul and just for Timothy. Look at the very last phrase. This isn't for me only. It's for everyone who loves his appearing. Believers don't, uh, unbelievers don't love his appearing, but believers do. Only those who embrace the first coming of Christ and its purpose, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Only those who embrace the cross and receive the message declared at first coming are those who long to see Jesus at the second coming. In Hebrews 9, Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away our sins, and he is going to appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for retirement, says someone. Well, not a bad thing, but it could be disappointing. <laughs> I'm waiting for the Detroit Tigers to win the World Series. <laughs> Get another hope. Worse yet with the Lions. What are you waiting for? It kind, of, it kind of describes who you are. And while there are many legitimate things that you and I could be waiting for, this has got to be near the top of the list, if not the very top. I'm waiting for Jesus. Because that's what Christians do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your presence we preach and in your presence we listen today. And in your presence we live our life. I pray that we'll go from this place and recognize once again that you have given to us a ministry and we are to fully carry it out so that when he appears, 
we will hear the well done, thou good and faithful servant. The pains of death are past, labor and sorrow cease, and life's long battle done at last. Our souls are found in peace. Oh, to hear these words, soldier of Christ, well done. Praise be thy new employ, and while eternal ages run, rest in your Savior's joy. In Jesus' name, amen.